0: on the Google Play or App Store, or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today.
1: Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam, can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired
0: to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, mark kenyon welcome
1: to the wired to hunt podcast i'm your host mark kenyon and today on the show we are joined by michael hunsucker of heartland bowhunter to run him through the what would you do gauntlet and we're going to get some bonus updates on a very exciting piece of wildlife conservation news All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And as I just mentioned, we've got a two-parter for you today. The first part is exciting conservation news. An important update for everyone that I wanted to get out to you right away so that we can start making a difference on this front. We're going to be talking about the Recovering America's Wildlife Act with John Gale of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. This is going to be one of the most impactful pieces of legislation that could impact wildlife and wildlife habitat across the country in in years and years, decades probably, maybe a generation. This is on the scale of the good kind of stuff we did last year when the Great American Outdoors Act was passed for public lands. This could do that kind of good for the critters that we love to watch, hunt, learn about, all sorts of stuff like that. So I highly encourage you to tune in for this first part because we as hunters can make a positive difference in helping this kind of thing move forward. So the first like 40, 45 minutes of today's episode is going to be about that. The second part is going to be diving into some deep white tailed deer hunting discussion with Mike Hunsucker from Heartland Bowhunter. It's an amazing show if you haven't watched it yet. Mike's been dedicated To bow hunting for a very long time now, hunting all across the Midwest and across the country. And he does a very good job of it. And today we're going to pick his brain about how he does those things and what he would do in a series of challenging circumstances, how he would handle things when it comes to managing a property, how he would handle some situations when it comes to scouting and preparing a property, what he would do in certain tricky deer hunting situations in the season. As you've probably heard me do with people over the last year and a half, I'm going to run him through all these. We're going to pick his brain to see what he would do, why he would do it, how he would do it, what his thought process is, all that kind of good stuff, which will hopefully give us a unique level of insight into his deer hunting approach, mindset, and process. So that's today's episode. Like I mentioned, First, 45 minutes or so is important conservation news that I hope you'll listen to and that I hope you'll take some action on. Second part is going to be some serious deer hunting know how. So, with that all said, hope you enjoy this. Thanks for being here. And let's get to my chat first with John Gale of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. All right, with me now on the line, I've got John Gale. John, thanks for taking the time to be here on the show.
2: Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure.
1: Yeah, I'm, I am excited to talk with you because I feel like we've got at least the potential for good news on the horizon. It's, it's so, and I, maybe you, you probably do feel the same way as I do on this, I'd guess, maybe not. But I subscribe to a lot of different newsletters and I get lots of updates that send me environmental and conservation and public land related news and stories like every day of the week. And it just seems like every day I pull up my inbox and I read through the headlines and I read this and I read that or I look on Instagram and I see this update and this piece of news and I get disheartened. Just so many pieces of bad news or this thing's coming down the line or this place got whatever burned down or locked up or drilled or whatever it might be. It seems like it's easy to get overwhelmed sometimes with the the depressing things that are happening to our natural resources and our wild landscapes. So today I'm hoping that we can dive into something that is, is pointing towards a better future. And that's the recovering America's wildlife act. And can, can you just give us a headline on that to get us started? What's in your mind, like, what is the headline? What's the key message that people need to hear when it comes to, when it comes to this?
2: Yeah, perfect way to kick things off. So, recovering America's wildlife act is a really thoughtful way to address places for wildlife investment that just haven't been made. So, hunters and anglers in particular have done a great job in in leading the way towards recovering big game species and and what we, you know, might call uh huntable fishable populations of of fish and wildlife species that were you know, on the brink in many ways for many species, especially big game species, but also migratory uh, wildlife, migratory bird species, at the the turn of the century when we decided we needed modern day wildlife management in the early 1900s, and and really started putting the pieces together. But over time, you know, investments from excise tax programs like Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson, which hunters and anglers should be proud of and our sort of legacy and indelible impact on supporting fish and wildlife through the, the organizations that we support or the the purchases we're making, we've done a great job on a lot of species, but not all the species. And and what this legislation would do is invest in non-game species and ensure that those that are most threatened, most vulnerable Stay out of the emergency room, so to speak. And when I talk about the emergency room, I'm referring to the Endangered Species Act when species become listed as threatened or endangered. And, and when you list a species under ESA, that's when it gets very expensive to manage fish and wildlife populations, to, to bring them back. So the idea is to invest in species that might be vulnerable or at risk now to ensure that they don't get to the emergency room in the first place works the same way with humans, right? Uh, insurance companies know this. Uh, if you go get your, your checkup once in a while and and you're staying on top of your, your healthy body situation, it's way cheaper than uh, an emergency room visit and you call 911. So same is true for wildlife. And, and that's exactly what this legislation would do. It would dedicate almost $1.4 billion annually to help state Territorial and tribal fish and wildlife management agencies to proactively manage those at risk species and prevent them from being added to the federal list of threatened and endangered species. It's bipartisan, which I'm super pumped about. Uh, C- Congresswoman Debbie Dingell from Michigan, there, out your way. Yeah. Uh, Congressman Jeff Fortenberry from Nebraska, Republican, round out things on the House side of the equation. In the uh, other chamber, in the Senate, we have Senator Martin Heinrich from New Mexico and Senator Blunt from Missouri, uh, sort of filling out the bipartisan nature. So this is uh, supported in both the Senate and the House. It's something that is the product of really decades of hard work by hunters and anglers and business leaders, people like Johnny Morris over at Bass Pro. And, And it's really great in the way they look at... Um, including tribes and and sovereign nations like tribal entities that play a huge role in fish and wildlife management that not a lot of people are aware of. There's a, a thing called state wildlife action plans, mm-hmm. and then there's a, a parallel planning process that the tribal management agencies utilize as well. Those have been around for decades, but they've been woefully underfunded at the state level, meaning they can't carry out all the great things that they know that they need to do for management of non-game species. So this really drives that 1.4 billion dollars a year into making sure the implementation of those wildlife action plans is done, you know, full bore and that we really get to work doing this. And why hunters and anglers should care about it is the fact that, you know, they share a habitat with game species too and if you're taking care of, you know, sagebrush country in the west for a non-game species, well, guess what? That's benefiting mule deer and pronghorn and elk too. And so it's a it's a really great way to think about it. And I think the main reason why you see so many hunters and anglers and hunting and fishing organizations uh, really behind this and you know putting their collective shoulder into the wheel. Yeah.
1: And you know, I think I think it's it's worth. Taking a step in looking at that picture a little bit more closely because it could be it could be easy as a if you're just a diehard hunter maybe and you look at the situation you say geez it seems like we're in the golden days of deer hunting there's deer everywhere or maybe you're into bear hunting and there's black bears everywhere you love elk and there's great big elk all over the place and you might think yourself i think america's wildlife is doing just fine but to your point there are a whole lot of critters out there that are in a much different position and maybe they don't get the, the spotlight shined on them as often, but you know, there's this, this idea um, it's, it's fairly well, I think accepted now that we're in the midst or the beginning of the potential of a sixth mass extinction type event that these things have happened over millions and millions of years where there's been periods of accelerated extinction species disappearing off the face of the earth in, in tight windows. It seems like, the extinction of species doesn't happen slowly. It seems like over geologic time, there's these these big bursts of change that leads to this kind of thing. And for the first time, it seems like a lot of scientists are pointing to that we are creating that. We, as humans, all the changes that we've that we've uh, struck across the planet are now impacting a whole lot of animals. There was a, a report, I think, in 2018, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I think it had point out that. Something like a third of plant, and animal species, and fish species across America are now at increased risk of extinction. Um, I know internationally, across the country, across the world. Sorry, that might even be higher. Um, it's insane. You can you can look at things even here in America, like monarch butterflies. I think 90 percent reduction in numbers. Uh, salmon, of course, anyone who fishes on the West Coast knows that salmon and steelhead runs are plummeting. Um, can you can you just speak a little bit more to this? a lot of people are referring to as like a biodiversity crisis. This is while whitetails might be doing great. There's a whole lot of other things out there that aren't. And, and really they're all connected.
2: Yeah. You're, you're right to think about this in such a holistic way and, you know, sort of pull back and take a, a bird's eye view. You know, when we, when we talk about recovering America's wildlife act specifically, you know, there's, there's around 12,000 species that we're focused on just for that. But if you, if you pull back and look at the, the phenomenon of what you're ultimately talking about, you know, some people, you know, might, uh, refer to it as, as macro evolution, so to speak, right? Like that's a, that's a term that you'll see some biologists and, and people taking a look at, what extinction really means as a natural process of what they call macro evolution. You know, this uh, occurs usually at a rate of around, if I'm remembering correctly, you know, about one out of one million species becoming extinct per year. And, and that may sound like a, a small fraction, but to your point in geological senses and in, in fossil record sense, you know, it seems rapid and, and the rate of species lost today Remains comparable to those periods of mass extinction that you reference, but I think the the biggest difference between previous mass extinctions and and the current extinction that that people feel we're already experiencing right now is the the a level of human activity. Right, human activity was either not present at all or uh, not a consequential presence, and now with you know. The destruction of habitat and the fragmentation of migration corridors, the introduction of invasive species across all taxa, over-harvesting of fish and wildlife populations. I mean, there's a, there's a pretty long list that is 100% attributable to human presence. And so we had to take a look at that and uh, juxtapose it with what you're talking about, this, this tiny amount of time on a geological timescale you know, ranging from, you know, what some experts say, like 10 to 50% even. And with the five previous extinctions on this scale being caused, you know, mostly by cataclysmic events that really changed the course of history and life in each instance, like, you know, earth is now in one of those times again. And some of that we can't, you know, stop or rewind the clock on, but we can do our part to focus on species that, uh, might be endangered or at risk and vulnerable in some way now and do what we can to make the habitats they occupy more resilient, more able to withstand some of these natural cycles. And we still may see a degree of extirpation, which uh, for those of your listeners who don't fully understand the difference between extinction and extirpation, you know, extinction is when a species completely disappears and is no longer in existence. Extirpation is when a species used to exist someplace, but no longer occupies their native range in that area. So so I think extirpation is something that, that we should really be concerned about um, right now, because we're seeing that happen already with a number of species in a number of places. And it's not too late to try and do something about it. And that's why Recovering America's Wildlife Act is an essential priority for backcountry hunters and anglers, where I work, but also... So many other groups working on this, including our friends at the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, who are leading the charge through uh, what they call the Alliance for America's Fish and Wildlife. A whole bunch of partners, BHA included, are a part of that. And, and if if you haven't checked out their website, I encourage you and anyone listening to this podcast to go to onenatureusa.com and take a look at what they have going on there. Really fantastic information. And, uh, and we love to support, you know, the, the people doing the great work there on the agency side of the equation. Yeah.
1: So, so speaking of, of what's happening on the agency side, the, the state level, like that, that's where the change is going to happen. Basically, this is going to give money to the state agencies so they can actually do their jobs. And I saw in one of the articles I read uh, for my home state of Michigan, I, I can't remember the exact number. I should have wrote this down. I'm a poor podcast host. But it was something like they had a budget of $35 million a year or something to do everything they had to do. And most of that comes from funds from hunting and fishing licenses, right? Uh, yeah. There, other yeah, than nice tax dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And so outside of the COVID boom, which did help us pump up some numbers there, in general, there has been a decline in funding or at least expected decline in funding for a lot of these states because of that funding resource. Um, now, if this were to pass, in the example of Michigan, based on the... Calculations they make to determine funding per state, I think if I remember, is based on state size or something like that. Um, their funding would more than double, so they would have more than double of their entire budget of what they would be doing to now actually be able to get stuff done for all of these things within that plan that they have written up for, for years and simply have never been able to put anyone behind some of these actions. Um, can you can you shine a little bit of light on? what these plans look like, how they came to be, um, what kind of things might be done. I mean, I think when someone thinks about a state wildlife agency managing wild resources and stuff, they're thinking, well, they're going to you know, make sure that people aren't poaching deer and they're going to make sure that there's a couple volunteer habitat days in public land and yada, yada, yada. But but what are these people doing and, and what could they do if they had real funding like this?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I mentioned the state wildlife action plans before. There's a a sister planning process uh, for tribal wildlife action plans in sovereign tribal nations. Those are essentially the conservation blueprints for our nation's fish and wildlife resources and preventing endangered species from becoming endangered species in the first place. that's that's the the core of what they do and and in order to sort of uh, meet their their you know planning requirements what they want to accomplish like a tremendous amount of funding uh needs to be applied to each of these plans and and there have been uh, eight required elements essentially laid out by Congress for the plan development and and the plans are all developed in collaboration with scientists uh, biologists private landowners and a number of other people and and right now uh, we are looking at ways to ensure that this this program these state and tribal fish and wildlife plans actually get fun and put together they've been around for a very long long time I, I don't remember the exact year I want to say maybe um, back back in 2005 sticks out as a date for me for some reason. I don't know exactly why, but uh, they've been around for a long time. And and I'm pretty sure 2005 was the year that each state and each territory and, and the District of Columbia submitted their plan for approval to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as a condition for receiving funding through a program called the State Tribal Wildlife Grants Program, which is has been woefully underfunded. And, and you know, if you look at what uh, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies says about that program, we see $61 million, uh, more or less, is appropriated annually by Congress to the 56 states, territories, and the District of Columbia to, to implement the plans. But what our research suggests and indicates is that we need really about $1.3 billion annually to implement the plans. And so that nearly $1.4 billion I mentioned in the beginning for the legislation is what that number is based off of. It goes back to that research where we've worked with uh, economists and uh, those that focus on natural resources to, to actually give us some real raw information we can work with and understand. And $1.3 billion is the, is the big number. Um, and a, a bit of a history lesson that's connected to all this was the formation of a, of a blue ribbon panel that brought together a diverse group of interest to focus on how we get there, acknowledging that we need $1.3 billion. And if, and if we're only pumping $61 million in from Congress, that's a huge deficit that we have to make up. So they they created the when I say they, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies was kind of leading this, they established the Blue Ribbon Panel on Sustaining America's Diverse Fish and Wildlife Resources. I believe that's the the official name. It's been a while since I uh, read up on it. But the goal of this Blue Ribbon Panel was to really develop a solution that was thoughtful and could get us there. And that's where the Recovering America's Wildlife Act was ultimately born. And that's where this legislative concept grew out of and why we are where we are now, which is, you know, very close to to being on the the verge of getting something done. Actually it's, it's getting congressional attention. It's been introduced in both the house and the Senate, and it's got a a lot of support on both sides out there. So we see a realistic chance of actually moving this thing forward and getting it done. And it would, it would do incredible things, um, you know, at the state level, not just, you know, helping agencies do what they've always done in terms of managing fish and wildlife populations, but getting to the things that they haven't been able to invest in, like, you know, habitat restoration and working with both private landowners and public-private partnerships and the federal land management agencies that that manage our public lands and waters, and really digging in on, on, like, invasive species and doing a host of important activities that they just haven't been able to spend any money doing. So like, you know, like restoring habitat for the the gopher tortoise, for example, would, would benefit quail habitat in the Southeast tremendously. And, and you mentioned monarch butterflies, you know, if we're enhancing pollinator habitat for monarch butterflies, that improves habitat conditions for almost all species you can think of, including deer and wild Turkey and, and everything else. And so, there, there is a real strong connection there, and and that's why we're so pumped and excited to be a part of this. So, you know, last year when the Great
1: American Outdoors Act was passed, we we you know heard and we celebrated it as this once in a generation win, like this massive, you know, paradigm shifting victory for the conservation movement, for public lands, for public access, all that kind of stuff. I'm hearing. Folks talking about this in this, in a similar context, like saying this is like the wildlife equivalent to the Great American Outdoors Act. If the, <laughs> if the GAO was all about this huge win for land, habitat access, the REWA, or however we want to say the acronym, is is like the wildlife complement to it. So we, we got the land protected. We have, a, we have resources now to acquire and protect land. Now we need resources to protect and manage the wildlife on it. Is that the right way to think about this? Like, is this that big of a deal?
2: Absolutely. That's almost exactly how we talk about it at BHA, too. You know, Great American Outdoors Act was phenomenal. And and we we worked on the Land and Water Conservation Fund for years. And we all have a shared victory to continue celebrating as, you know, $900 million is dedicated annually to LWCF and $9.5 billion dollars over the next five years is being dedicated to uh, infrastructure and deferred maintenance and all the great things that the legacy restoration fund is going to, to fund. Now we get to do the exact same thing, but focus specifically on wildlife through the recovering America's wildlife act. Uh, you're right. Like uh, Rawa is the acronym. We're not supposed to say that by the way. So <laughs> okay. hopefully none of the important people are listening to this podcast. Whoops. We, we try and say the full thing because it's just a uh, we mouthful. want people to really <laughs> – it is a mouthful, and everyone slips, and we, we say rah all the time. But the reason why we try and force ourselves into saying the full thing is because you get to really like remind yourself that we're covering America's wildlife, but that's so important. and And being able to focus this amount of money in habitat enhancement through restoration, invasive species removal – across all taxa and look at research and watershed health and wildlife management across jurisdictional boundaries. That's awesome. And what a massive win and something that's been hanging out there for so long. Like I mentioned in the beginning, we've invested a lot in big game species and and charismatic megafauna, but there's a lot missing on the non-game side. And by doing so, we, we continue to invest in all the other wildlife species at the same time. So it's a great thing. Yeah. Now, I, I know there's some folks
1: out there, my my fiscal conservative friends, who, who see a $1.4 billion price tag and say, where's that going to come from? How are we going to pay for that? Uh, I know that over the years, as this, this idea has been proposed, that brought some concerns from the Republican side of the aisle as well. Um, I, I see that with the recent introduction to the Senate, they've got a creative solution. Funding this do you want to fill us in on that?
2: yeah, for sure, so uh, things are still kind of coming together around that there's there's technically no specified what we call a pay for uh, how to how to offset the expense of the one point four billion and it's not it's not quite one point four billion, but when you add in the tribal side, we're getting close um, so there's no specified pay for in the House bill, but in the Senate bill. Uh, there 's a, a really uh, creative pay for using what what i 'll quote as the amount of all civil or criminal penalties, fines, sanctions, forfeitures or other revenues resulting from natural resource or environmental related violations or enforcement actions by any federal agency that are that are not directed to be deposited in a fund other than the general fund of the treasury or have otherwise been appropriate. So that's like a it's a lot of like specific uh, uh technical jargon for the bill that essentially says we're going to make the criminals pay for it, which is awesome, yeah. right? Like, so
1: who can argue so, with that?
2: Like let's make the poachers pay for it. Who can who cannot be in support of that? Yeah. So so that's the the working concept on the Senate side to help pay for this and and we're we're looking at uh, what is called a manager's amendment in the House bill when it comes up for markup to see if we can uh, essentially cut and paste the same pay for that I just described for the Senate bill and apply it for the House bill. Um, and, and as we look at opposition in the House, you're right, like most of it has been because of the price tag. But um, we're we're also getting some opposition back on the Senate side, the Environment and Public Works Committee, who we're working closely with to make sure that everyone's on board with this solution, you know, they're not entirely fond of the pay for because it isn't brand new revenue coming in. So essentially, we're, we're shifting revenue that's going into the general treasury uh, without any specific earmark to a program and shifting it over there. And, and what they would like to see is brand new revenue generated somehow. For these types of offsets. I don't think that's mission critical. Finding new revenue is difficult and and sometimes uh, doesn't align as well. And I personally like the sort of poetic justice of taking that criminal penalty side of things. You're doing something especially criminal on the the wildlife side of the equation, like poaching. If we can direct um, penalties and uh, fines and forfeitures and things like that coming in through the the wildlife side of the system, whether it's state level or or U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. If it's coming into the U.S. Treasury, applying it to this seems like a really great way to achieve some justice for wildlife. Like, you know, we're, we're impacting wildlife over here. We're taking what we've been able to recover in terms of criminal penalties and, and helping wildlife out over here. Like there's like, a, a bit of poetic justice to it that I really love. And, oh, yeah. and so I hope that we can keep that intact as it moves through both, both chambers. Yeah. I think it's, you couldn't write it up any better. I mean, that's, that's perfect.
1: Uh, now related to this whole funding debate, there's another side to this that I'm sure some people have brought up or maybe will, which, which, Kind of echoes some of the negativity that came out of proposals around the backpack tax, which, you know, I know you know about folks have said, well, you know, hey, if you are recreating on public lands, you should have to pay some kind of tax or fee, just like hunters and anglers do when we buy ammunition or, you know, we, we fund so much of conservation through our license sales, through the tax applied to our ammo and firearms equipment, et cetera, et cetera. So why shouldn't backpackers and bikers and that, those kind of people pay in too, um, and so that's been proposed, but some folks within the hunting and fishing community would look at that and say, actually, I don't want that because when we, hunters and anglers, are the ones who pay for the majority of conservation work, we get a disproportionate percentage of the voice. We get a bigger seat at the table because we can say, hey, we paid for it all, so you got to listen to us when we talk about how yeah. to manage it. Do you think there will be, are there any? people worried about that in this kind of case. Like all of a sudden we're going to significantly increase the resource base and it's not as directly tied to hunters and anglers. Is that something we need to be worried about at all? Or is that just over, you know, overblowing something?
2: Well, you hear that, but I'm not sure how, how big a deal it really is. Right. Like uh, I think if you ask any fish and wildlife agency about the need to diversify funding sources and revenue sources everyone's kind of on the same page like you know hunters and anglers have been shouldering the burden for far too long and and we don't have that much more to give so we have to bring in other contributions from elsewhere and you know you could make the argument that it might disenfranchise hunters and anglers in the process slightly but I think bringing in other stakeholders is is generally a a good thing, and you're not going to um, keep hunters and anglers from continuing to have uh, probably the most important voice in management decisions along the way. The, the, The states know where their bread is buttered, so to speak, and license sales are still incredibly important. So I'm less concerned about that. And I think if we're thoughtful about implementation as these funding mechanisms get put into place, we can avoid that by being thoughtful up front and making sure that we avoid circumstances where, where that could even happen in the first place. And it's a it's a way to uh bring in new revenue while maintaining sort of the, the proud legacy and tradition that hunters and anglers have already had in making their contributions. This is a way to to I think elevate that and to complement it in a new way that brings some serious money to the table. And we're, we're supportive of exploring new revenue ideas too. Like the, we've, we've floated this, you know, backpack tax conversation, lots of different ways with lots of different people. And it, it's complicated. You know, if you, you talk to our friends in the outdoor industry, they're understandably uh, uh, really concerned about that. They're already being crushed by tariffs and um, they can't afford to to pay more on top of what they're already paying in their tariff structure so how can we be creative about what a uh, maybe it's not a backpack tax right maybe we're talking about tariff redirection we're taking um you know existing tariffs and redirecting a portion of them to something like this or we're working with our friends in the outdoor industry to reduce the tariffs they're they're paying and replacing that with some form of excise tax there's i think a lot of clever ideas out there that we should explore with our friends in the outdoor industry to get to something like this. And there's a lot of interest in Congress on both sides of the equation. You know, we, we've been hearing from Republicans and Democrats, both they're very interested in exploring what this looks like. I think it's just too premature to have it be a solution for recovering America's wildlife act. But, uh, that doesn't mean that down the road, it couldn't be. And we should continue looking for new revenue generation, um, to support wildlife conservation in general. And, and certainly that's an additional solution that, that ultimately we could legislate into, uh, feeding Recovering America's Wildlife Act funds for state and tribal wildlife action plans as much as, you know, going to, uh, the wildlife and sport fish restoration fund itself too. Um, so lots of opportunities before us. And I think if we're careful not to, close any doors or tie our hands behind our backs unnecessarily. We can leave those options on the table and and get to a place that makes sense for everybody. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense to me. So
1: so back to the Michigan example. Potentially doubling the budget that these folks have to work with to make positive change on the ground. That's like world changing kind of numbers there. How likely is this thing gonna happen like how do you, is this a is this a pipe dream still is this something that you think like with the right pushing and prodding it's actually gonna happen what's the timeline um where where do we stand with this thing and, and should i be grabbing up my little uh party hats and that kind of thing or what
2: <laughs> I, I think you should keep the party hats in the drawer but uh within an arm's reach um we're we're a ways away from pushing this over the finish line we are We feel very confident about it, however. There's August recess coming up. The the House is getting ready to be wheels up and go back home to their districts tomorrow. The Senate is set to head out for their recess sometime later next week. After August recess, they have to come back in September and and do a whole bunch of things, um, including getting a budget passed because the fiscal year ends at the end of September. Things like the the Surface Transportation Authority expires, so they've got to authorize that again. And any leftover business related to uh, what they call budget reconciliation and infrastructure deals and things like that uh, could spill into September still. So there's a lot that needs to happen in the short term, but a lot of promise that indicates this might actually move in this Congress And, and if it doesn't, then we're not that far away from the next Congress. And we see a lot of the leadership in place on this bill, ready to move it, very excited and motivated to move it. And with so much backing at the state level, I I see it as a, as a big win, as long as we can really uh, get that pay for taken care of in the house bill, make sure our friends in the environment, um, and public works committee on the Senate side are okay with this concept of a pay for, if we get that dialed in, that's really the the biggest barrier to being able to, to get this bill a markup and hearings and ultimately floor votes to get it over the finish line and and off to president Biden. So I would say it's realistic. It's not imminent in the short term, but it, it could happen. Um, by the, by 2022, there's a a chance that I think it could move at the end of this year if we were able to get things done quickly. So on congressional timelines, that's, that's as close to light speed as you're going to get. So back in
1: 2016, 17, 18, 19, we were able to rally our community and kind of put, put the foot on the throat of the land transfer, at least the blatant land transfer type proposals and bills. And we kind of got that at least ostracized to the outskirts. We then in 2020, we got the Great American Outdoors Act passed. And a lot of that, I think, came from the fact that we as a community and other outdoor recreators just made it politically impossible not to get behind something like this. It became a poison pill to be anti-public lands. It became We we simply force the issue with putting constant pressure on these folks through whether it be the media or letters or phone calls or rallies. Uh, You really, it seems to be a very clear correlation between the action of people listening to this podcast and others out there and people that care about this stuff and what actually happened. Like, it wasn't like these folks all of a sudden changed their minds and decided all of a sudden one day, you know, what I actually do care about the environment in public lands. No. They said, I want to keep my job. I want to get elected again. And we told them yeah, what they right. would need to do. So how do we, what What do you think from your experience being inside a lot of this over the last five to 10 years, what can we learn from our wins over the last five to 10 years, last couple of years really? What can we learn from that and apply to this to make sure this happens too?
2: <laughs> well, uh, Mark, the, the cynic in me says we can learn that uh, no matter how well-meaning we are that the politics will always reign supreme over uh, creating a sense of urgency in legislative deal-making, right? We, we saw the great American outdoors act move quickly. uh, One because it was bipartisan nature. So there's some feel good stuff there too, but it was also a super interesting, political dynamic at play with some key Republicans in vulnerable seats and and, and a Republican president working to make sure that uh, those uh, vulnerable Republicans had something like the Great American Outdoors Act to really run on, move some of those moderate votes to your point about keeping their jobs. And so you had uh, a really unpredictable political dynamic at play that really create the sense of urgency thrust this to the finish line so quickly and move the great American outdoors act ahead. Um, so I, I think there's, um, uh, a, always going to be that that political piece of it too. And, and you referenced the whole public lands sell off, uh, when we saw Congressman Chaffetz from Utah introduce his land disposal bill. Now, that wasn't a, a new bill. Like that bill had been introduced before, but to to credit your listeners to credit all the great wildlife advocates out there the engaged we just have a different technology platform than we ever have before activating people informing people and creating real time communications across digital media spaces you know is a whole new era for advocacy and and when BHA sort of lit the fuse on our end and our, our friends and other conservation organizations did likewise. We were able to really capitalize on those connected digital networks to raise the alarm. And, and Congressman Chaffetz was relatively young and, and connected and, and using digital media himself. And so, you know, we saw for the first time a member of Congress, uh, both. Uh, you know, yank back his bill and say withdraw it, but he did it on Instagram while holding his little hound dog. It was just like a classic image <laughs> yeah. that's burned in so many of our, our memories, like with this pivotal moment where the entire hunting and fishing universe that cares about public lands and waters really beat up on him in a, in a immediate way so much so that he reeled back and withdrew his legislation, did it over Instagram and Facebook and it was i think a sign of the times um a sign of change but also a strong reminder that all of us still have an important role to play in in every phone call every email you you send still matters we saw that play out with the great american outdoors act as well you know despite some of the urgency created with the political dynamics i described the most important thing that happened was that a lot of people cared about it and members of congress knew a lot of people back in their home states cared about it, and that's ultimately what thrust it over the finish line and I think we could see something like that play out for Recovering America's Wildlife Act too. We don't have the 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 unpredictable political dynamics at play, but we have the important part in place, which is a lot of people on both sides that care about this. Oh, and by the way, we have a whole bunch of state agencies and tribal nations really pushing this ahead all at the same time. So I might even argue and make the case that Recovering America's Wildlife Act has a stronger position to move this bill ahead than the Great American Outdoors Act had because you have such a diversity of really influential stakeholders working together to make it happen. So I I feel really positive about it, but also, you know, it's, it's good to point out that Everyone can still make a difference. And the romance of our democracy is alive and well. And if I could communicate anything to you and your listeners, it's, uh, that's, that's a good uh, place to pin hope on. And, and I'm really excited about it. Yeah. So what do you want us to do, John? What, what should we do in the short term to make sure this
1: thing moves forward, even though it's early stages? And then what should we be watching for as the like five alarm you know red flashing light to really hammer down on it. What are the key times to look forward to in the future as well?
2: After we get back from August recess, we should know more as Congress makes decisions, they start calendaring things at the committee level for hearings and markups and things like that. But the best way to stay abreast of that is to uh, go to the Alliance website, uh, the Alliance for America's Fish and Wildlife at ournatureusa.com and find your favorite uh hunting and fishing or conservation organization listed there and find the one you're a member of uh if you're a member of backcountry hunters and anglers come to our website we have an action alert set up supporting the legislation uh it doesn't have to be us find your favorite one go take action through their action system pick up the phone call your senators in your home states call your member of congress and whatever district you live in and let them know this is an important piece of legislation for you and that you want to see them support it move ahead and elevate a sense of urgency with their party leadership in the house or the senate whoever you're calling and we'll keep you posted as things move uh our friends at the association of fish and wildlife agencies are doing a great job of of monitoring this and and writing hurt on it and um there's a lot of ways that I think people can engage and participate that way. But you have to connect with an organization that you're aligned with, that you're a member of, so you can have a place to stay up to speed on these things and and move ahead. And and I would uh, give a shout-out to the National Wildlife Federation here, too. They've been leading the charge uh, on state wildlife action plans and funding for those for for a long time. I used to work there myself and uh, did a lot of fly in supporting it. And so they've been an important partner Really helping lead the charge here. Uh, Congressional Sportsmen's Foundation um, is doing a lot, so check out their website. There are a lot of places people can stay up to speed on it. But you know, the fact that I just mentioned National Wildlife Federation, Congressional Sportsmen's Foundation, in the same sentence shows you the breadth of people engaged and supportive in leading the way on this.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful thing, and uh, I'm I'm excited to uh, to be there with all the rest of the listeners and hunters and anglers out there hoping to uh, get this thing across the finish line so john unless there's anything else you want to mention i i think we've got our marching orders
2: i appreciate it so much mark thanks for finding some time to talk about this it's outstanding i can't uh applaud your enthusiasm enough so um i'm grateful for for the chance to connect with you and your listeners absolutely hopefully we can talk again here soon
1: with an update and good news on the horizon
2: I look forward to it. We'll be there to let you know all about it.
0: Pay attention here, because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever, and you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work. Get 15% off at UrgentCareKit.com slash eater, and use promo code eater. That's promo code eater at UrgentCareKit.com slash eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do. On the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This this, this is my way of bull saying If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking. Create searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill.
1: All right, and now we're going to get to part two of the episode with Mike over at Heartland Bowhunter. We're going to run him through the What Would You Do gauntlet. Here we go. All right, with me now on the line, I've got Michael Hunsucker from Heartland Bowhunter. Mike, how are you?
3: What's up, man? Long time no talk.
1: I know. I'm glad we're getting to do this. I think think the last time that you were on the main show, I know you've been on some of the Rut Fresh Radio stuff, but the last time you were on the main show was the very first year of the podcast. Do you remember this? Wow! I think you and Sean, you and Sean came on and we talked photography and different stuff like that. And that would have been 2014, I think.
3: Isn't that crazy? Time flies, man. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It doesn't feel that long ago. Part of me, part of me thinks it doesn't feel that long ago. Part of me feels like it was a lifetime ago, but, uh, yeah, lots lots well, changed since we've, then. We've had
3: children since then and uh that usually makes things a big blur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: That's the truth. So how how old are you? you got two boys, right? How old are they now?
3: Yeah. Yeah, I got two boys, Camden who's uh, almost 8, he'll be 8 in a couple of weeks, and then uh, Noah's 5. So really getting into that fun stage. I kind of have enjoyed all the all the di- different stages, but as they get older, you just are able to do more with them and especially with our lifestyles it just makes it easier with the travel with the the stuff outdoors and everything they you know they really enjoy it so
1: yeah definitely that's i've experienced the same thing with our boys are three and a half and one and a half now and it's still real challenging in a lot of ways but yeah yeah, just get creative about ways to get them out there and keep them involved and make it a family thing and it's been good it's been good but yeah no shortage of uh i don't know interesting disasters. I think It's just just
3: different, right? It's a completely different experience.
1: Yeah, that's the truth. Well, what I was wanting to do today, Mike, is run you through something I've started to do with a handful of people. And I call it my what would you do gauntlet. So the idea here is that I'm going to present to you a specific situation, like a, a very specific set of hypothetical circumstances like you're in this place at this time and this thing's happening what would you do and then the idea is to try to have you explain to me how you would take you know what you would do why you would do it how you'd handle that situation and kind of talk through your thought process and and what steps you would take um it's just kind of a different way for us to get a glimpse into your mind and your deer hunting approach and all that so that's that's what i want to throw at you uh the question is are you game for that
3: absolutely i'm always game for whatever <laughs>
1: <laughs> so then i'm I'm gonna be you tough i like you. the answer but i'll give you one <laughs> <laughs> that's all i can ask for i'm gonna throw the the most devastating doozies i can think of as far as tough situations and then we'll see okay. how you'll handle it and uh and then there might be a couple softballs in here for you too but uh i think it should be fun right on and then uh you know we'll wrap it up with some rapid fire questions i want to hear a little bit about what's new with heartland bowhunter and uh, then I'll send you on your way and we can start getting ready for hunting season.
3: Right on, man. Sounds good.
1: So here's what I want to start with, Mike. I want to kind of begin with the off season, kind of where we are right now. So let's say it's August 5th and you are at a random diner somewhere in Missouri and a random friend of a friend comes up to you and he says, Hey, you know, I have this big family farm. We used to have some guys that were leasing it. They just pulled out. They can't do it anymore. Uh, it's a great spot. You, you've heard about it. You know it's a great spot. And he wants you to pick up the lease and pay for it. And you know he needs that money for his family. And he knows you're in a deer hunting, so we'd love for you to pick up the lease. But he says, hey, I'll give you the first year for free because I think you're going to like it so much. Come on out. Check this place out. And then see if you're interested in going from there. So you're presented the situation, but it's August 5th. And opening day in Missouri is September 15th, right? So you've got five, five and a half weeks, something like that. So my question is, in that situation, and everything else you got going on, A, would you take him up on this deal, assuming that you've heard of this place and you know it's pretty dang good? And then B, assuming you do take it, what would you do in that five-week period? What are the most important things you would do in the next couple weeks right away to get started so late in the game in a new place?
3: Yeah, no, uh, I, I'm never one to say no to a new piece of property. So <laughs> you can, it seems like you can never have too many options, especially when, when one gets stale and, uh, you've been hunting a specific, you know, property and things aren't going your way. Sometimes it's good to just, you know, take a break, take the pressure off that property and jump onto something else. And so, um, August 5th, yeah, you know, a little late in the, in the game as far as, uh, you know prepping for the upcoming season but also not too late for um even if you were want to do some some food plots so you know my my number one thing would be obviously to kind of take a look at the property for, you know from from the outside in at first and you know learn as much as you can about what's available um as far as food cover and water and um you know see what limited resources there might be and you know, try to improve upon those as much as possible in a, in a short window. Um, we're like right now we are gearing up, you know, for a lot of the fall plot stuff. And, um, you know, you can plant fall plots as early as, you know, like August 5th, you can, you you know, you can plant them that early. Um, you just need to get the moisture in the rain. And so what we do is typically we'll kind of prep everything this time of year and, and then just wait, wait for the right time to plant. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, um, number one, just kind of, you know, look at the the maps, overview of the property, kind of try to figure out, you know, what, what ways you might be able to improve it in that short window of time. And then, you know, another thing I probably would like to do would, would be to, um, you know, obviously get cameras out as soon as possible. Uh, fortunately, in Missouri, we can run cellular cameras. So if that's an option, um, they've been... I mean, they're just a, there's a, a game changer as far as, um, intrusion, you know, and, and getting in on a property. And, and so, um, you know, get some cameras out, find out what, you know, what quality of deer are there, kind of what areas they're at, what they are focusing on and, um, you know, and then, you know, beyond the, the food plots and the, and the cameras, obviously getting a few stand sites up, um, you know, hanging new stands can be pretty disturbing. And so, the uh, if you can get that done prior to season to where you can give them time to settle and and cool off and, and let the deer get accustomed to stuff, then uh, that's a that's a good, good time to do it. So I think, you know, we I've always talked about when I hunt a new property, I love hunting in like a brand new property. For me, it's just like something exciting about learning something yeah. new. I mean, it's it's fun to hunt, you know, traditional properties that, you know, and you've been hunting for years but I love just jumping into a new piece of property and learning everything I can about it. So, um, I always like to kind of start from the outside and work my way and kind of be non, not too intrusional in the the beginning, you know, and just, um, scout, scouting is a great thing right now. Um, so in the the Midwest soybeans, as you know, are, are kind of the key of the summer, (laughs) you know, the summer bean, the summer, the summer food source for the big bucks. The best. Um, so yeah, so you know, this time of year is a great time to, to scout from the road or you know pop into a field last couple hours of daylight and with the wind in your favor and kind of glass with a spotting scope and some binoculars and really get a pattern on on deer. Um, they're just they're just so so patternable this time of year. They're so regular and they're they're super visible. So um, I, I you know I, honestly like August fifth, you say. Gives you, you know, a little, little over uh you know, a month basically to to uh to figure things out. But that I think that's ample time to really get dialed in if you needed to.
1: When you say, you know, at the very beginning you said you gotta scout it and figure out where the cover, where the food is, etc. It at this period, would you like what would your scouting look like other than the glassing, like the long distance scouting? But what about like on the ground pounding out the miles? Would you would you walk every square inch so you know it or is it too late and you don't want to do that, you know, five weeks before the season? Um, what would that like specifically look like as far as trying to learn what's actually there on the ground?
3: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, you could, you can do that and get away with it. And, and, and obviously you disturb it short term. Um, I don't know that the, I don't know that you have that much to gain as far as like diving into the timber and like trying to find like rut spots. Like I save that for, you know, uh, later in October, uh, when or even in November, when you the sign is going to be so much more prevalent. You know you're going to have the scrapes, you're going to have the rubs, you're going to have all that. And so, um, really, for, for me in early season in Missouri, I'm hunting fringes anyways. I'm hunting food, and that's basically it. We're not hunting mornings much. Um, you know, we're not diving into the timber. We're hunting food plots. We're hunting, you know, soybeans. Um, basically, you know, fr- fringe type stuff to where you can get in and out easily and you're not going to disturb deer because that's the thing. I mean, I, I love hunting. That first week of Missouri season has been has been my most effective week of the season for, for targeting, like, a specific buck. And it's one of those situations where it's easy to get excited, right? It's the opening week of season, and, like, you want to get out there and hunt as much as you can. But um, I, I've kind of learned over the years, like, it's really better if you're really trying to target one specific buck to just – play your cards right, wait for the conditions to be right, and then make your move. And uh, rather than, you know, basically quality sits over over quantity. Yeah.
1: So then you mentioned that a lot of what you like to do at that time of year is revolve around that food. Is it safe to assume, and, and you mentioned this is one of the things, but what I'm thinking of five weeks, very little prior knowledge, and also you need a quick bang for your buck. Is that likely the very first and most important habitat project you would take in a situation like this? Knowing, not knowing much else about the property. Let's just assume it's like your average Missouri property. Maybe it's half crops, it's half timber and a couple draws, that kind of deal. Assuming that generic situation, is it safe to say like if there's a spot to put them in, you're going to put something in? And then secondly, what would that thing be? What do you think would be your quick bang for your buck? last minute plot of choice for this kind of situation.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I think that'd be the, the, the focus out of the gate. Uh, you're not going to jump in and do any 10% improvement or, uh, doze off any, you know, places and, or build water hole. I mean, that that's kind of long-term planning type stuff. And so, um, when you're talking about bang for your buck, I mean, I, I really, really like using planting brassicas, um, whether it's turnips or radishes, um, you know, different blends, uh, they're really easy to establish and it's a very small seed. So you don't need a ton of equipment. So if you don't have all the equipment, um, it's not a big deal. If you can get that seed to soil contact on bare dirt, um, then you can get it a food plot established. I love, absolutely love clover plots and we'll, you'll find us hunting clover a lot during the early season. But as far as like, you know, this time frame now, it's, you can plant some fall clover plots and the clover will get established, but it takes some time. So you're not going to get that lush clover plot, um, planting it right now in the fall. So my, uh, my go-to would for sure be a, um, you know, a, a, a brassica blend of sorts. Um, I, I really like the radishes a lot, I like radish blends. Um, it seems like that they, they hit the radishes a little, little earlier in the year, um, than, than the turnips, but it really depends. I mean, everybody talks about that, like, you know, If you plant, you know, turnips, they're going to eat the, you know, eat the leaves, uh, prior to the frost. And then once the hard frost, you know, then they'll start eating them, eating the bulbs and all that stuff. And I think it really, it just really depends on the farm, the deer, the food sources available, um, and, and whatnot. So, you know, we have, we have some properties that are super high deer numbers and, you know, the food may be a little more limited and they will devour turnip or brassica, whatever, like September 15th opening day, like they're eating them. And, um, so, you know, it just kind of depends, but, um, and then we've had properties too, lower deer densities and they won't touch them until later in the winter when, you know, all the other food's gone and snow comes in. And so just a, just really depends on the, on the deer and what they're, how many deer there are on the property, what they're used to, et cetera, the other available food sources. So, yeah. but that's, this is a great, easy to establish plot. I feel like is, is those smaller seed type plots as opposed to planting grain, you know, you're too late now for corn or soybeans or any of that stuff.
1: Yeah, it's hard to go wrong with brassicas, like you said. Now, what about the the stand prep? You mentioned hanging a few stands before the season gets going. Would you would those first stands that you work on be those kind of edge spots that you talked about to focus on for the early season, or are you wanting to get your rut spots, some potential rut spots, hung now so you don't need to go in there at all ever again until November one or whatever? What you know, what how are you going to prioritize which locations you set up?
3: Yeah, I mean, for sure, the first focus would be some observation-type stands, Um, and and even ones, you know, you could hang these stands and sit in them, you know, to observe the, you know, this this time of year, observe the, you know, the movement of the deer, and then kind of dial in. Um, Like I said, you're not going to cause too much disturbance right now, but uh, I would definitely get some observation stands hung in some areas where, you know, you can at least have a starting point, and then Um, if you do learn from your summer scouting, you know, an area of, oh, say that these deer are really coming out of this corner of this bean field and they're focusing this little pocket, you know, maybe hang a stand, you know, somewhere close to there where you're going to be, you know, somewhere within, within bow range, hopefully. Um, like I said, I, I wouldn't be too gung ho about diving in and, and looking for like a primo rut spot necessarily. Although. Just because, like I said, that's the the scrapes, the rubs, the sign is not nearly as prevalent. Everything's overgrown this time of year. Although there are some pretty obvious spots occasionally on on certain you know farms and properties where the topography and the um, you know the timber pinches down, or there might just be these, these great looking rut funnel type spots. And I would not be afraid to uh, jump in and hang a stand in one of those in one of those spots just to have you know something as an option. Um, but like I said, I mean I. I travel and hunt quite a bit new hunt, hunt, some new properties. And, you know, a lot of times I'm hanging my sands, in, you know, in the middle of the hunt, in the middle of the rut and, you know, being minimally, you know, invasive as far as like, you know, what you're trimming and cutting, cutting stuff down. And I've actually found a lot of success, like first time in on a stand, you know, you hang it and hang it and jump in and, and, uh, have a lot of success. So, um, That time of year, too, you know, the rut's starting to gear up. The bucks are a little more tolerable to getting bumped around a little bit. So it's just like you can get away with a little more that time of year. Yeah.
1: So back to the summer, um, back to the summer scouting stuff real quick. And imagine we're leading into the season. And for whatever reason, I told you that you get to have one night of summer glassing the entire summer. You only get one night. And if you don't spot a shooter buck on that one night of glassing, you can't hunt at all. <laughs> I don't know why oh, this would oh be boy. the case, but let's just say this is the case. Well, <laughs> I, I, I present this story because I want to understand like what the best situation for spotting a mature buck in the summer would be in your eyes because there's a lot of folks that maybe don't have a whole lot of time to get away for this kind of thing right they've got kids they've got the day job and they can maybe get out just a couple times a summer maybe the property they're hunting in the rut or whatever it is they've got to drive five hours to get to so they have to be choosy about the weekend that they choose to do this so what would be the ideal scenario for you to get eyes on you know what your hopeful shooter buck would be in the summer where what kind of place would you look for Specifically, like the ideal scenario, what kind of day, weather, uh, what kind of location would you pick to watch this spot? Um, fill me in on how you would
3: handle that. Well, I mean, yeah, in a perfect world, obviously, evening, um, evenings on the bean field. Um, you know, if you can find, I feel like those big, mature deer um, tend to, especially in areas where there's, you know, pressure or, you know, road traffic, whatever. I I feel like they try, they they tend to hang near the secluded, more secluded fields um, where they can feel comfortable, fields that are maybe close to, uh, you know, good cover. And and so I think that's kind of where I would start as far as like trying to locate a shooter deer is, you know, where is their food that's close to, you know, really good cover that is secluded away from, you know, pressure. And so that's kind of where I would start. And then you know, when it comes to like picking a time frame, like you know, August, we're getting you know, in in into August, they're pretty well full grown. Um, you know, they're just kind of finishing up. So, like, if you, you know, if you get too excited and get out there, in, you know, June or, or or even early July, you know, they're not they're not taking too much shape yet. So, you really won't know know a whole lot about them. But they're by by August, they're pretty well full grown. And so, um, the one tricky thing I I feel like from my experience is the weather. Um you know a lot of times i feel like you and, and as hunters naturally like during season we're like anticipating that like cool off that cold front yes. that high pressure and from my experience like summer velvet like august time frame sometimes i feel like that's will mess up will screw a deer up and like i don't know why i, I it may maybe it's just that it shifts his pattern a little bit and it changes his mindset and he starts thinking about the fall and does something different i don't know but for me i like in a picture perfect world if i'm like trying to get say i'm saying i'm going to go out and scout and, and try to video this buck i've been getting pictures of you know consistency is is more important in my opinion than, than a big change in weather <laughs> i think if you get a boost like right now today it's gonna be 100 degrees here in missouri where i'm at Um, you know, today, tonight would not be a night that I would want to be in the field, nor what I think would be great, you know, for deer movement. Um, but if it was, you know, going to be in nineties, like it has been or 85, whatever consistent, like consistent weather, I think produces kind of consistent, you know, results in the deer. That's a really interesting point. One
1: I hadn't thought about, but when I look back on summer sightings, there's something to be said about that. Um, it's really interesting.
3: Because, I mean, I just I just remember early on, like, oh, yeah, like, this cold front's coming through. Like, let's go out and, like, you know, let's go try to film some velvet bucks. And then, like, you don't see hardly much at all. You're like, what's going on? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I I, I don't know. I don't know if this is something that other people experience or not. But that's just kind of Sean and I have always talked about that, how, you know, you anticipate cold fronts coming during the season. But, like, early, even early season a little bit, I feel like a big cold front can kind of be a little little wacky. Yeah, I've certainly seen, you
1: know, when there's that consistent warm weather and you're thinking, ah, they they wouldn't want to move and it's so hot like this, and the bam, there they are. They're there, they're there night or yeah. night. So something to it maybe. What about what about this one? And this is a this is something that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, but I'm gonna wish it on you for the moment. <laughs> imagine <laughs> imagine you have a property that for whatever reason you could not get out to see at all after you planted your food plots so you planted your you know mid-august late august whatever time frame it is you got those brassicas or whatever you plant in the ground you can't get back to the property until september 14th so it's the night it's the night before opening day you're heading in to try to get your opening day hunt you've got the weekend whatever it is you get there that night and you glass the area and you see that all of your food plots literally every one, has failed there was a drought it's just dirt fields. You've got nothing planted that you put in. Nothing's alive and green and kicking. What would you do for that first weekend hunt? How would you handle that situation? Knowing knowing nothing else.
3: Well, uh, that's, like you said, you wouldn't wish it on anybody, but that's a pretty normal thing for, for people, I feel like. Um, even for us, you know, we've, um, I'm trying to think, it's probably been three years ago. Um, we got no rain, no rain, no rain we planted and got like a tiny little bit of rain and then nothing afterwards. And so the food plots were just trashed. And so, um, just cr- crazy, crazy enough. Sean and I went up to hunt. Um, man, I want to say, yeah, it was opening weekend, opening weekend. And the plots were terrible. We, we literally tilled them up and replanted them. We had some rain coming. So it was like September 15th. And so like, we knew wow. that these plots weren't going to, um, produce like bulbs or whatever, but like, as far as like any sort of forage, you know, we were like, all right, we're going to plant them in turnips and at least they'll have the leaves to browse on. And um, so that's what we did. We planted the food plot uh, opening day of our opening weekend of Missouri season and actually ended up coming back uh, like two weeks later, very end of September and killed a buck over one of those food plots. Wow. So nice. He was coming in. They were just very, you know, the, the turnips were really, really uh, fresh growth, but they were browsing on them and and kind of just picking through them as they were going out towards the destination field. So, um, you know, it, it, it's not, it's not uncommon that it's just a gamble this time of year, obviously, especially in the Midwest, it's just hot and it's dry. And you know, the, the rains come in spurts. And so timing it is, is key. Like I said, um, and sometimes you just, you can do everything in your power to, to, uh, get it done and it still doesn't work out. So, uh, but back to back to kind of your, your question of like what, how to handle that. Like, you know, not everybody's going to, you know, go in and replant their food plots and till them up. But um, hopefully in that case, like you said, you know, there are uh, other food sources available. um, And you could focus on those food sources. The Midwest is, you know, corn, soybeans. Uh, We have a lot of mature oaks, a lot of acorns. And so there's a lot of food and browse, you know, readily available for, for deer so it just may kind of change up your kind your your strategy a little bit, and you may have to kind of um, refocus your efforts on the existing food sources uh, and the other the other food sources that are available. Um, one thing you know worth worth mentioning that's more applicable to to late season, but uh, a lot of guys you know like I said don't have the equipment or the ability to plant corn and soybeans and um, row crops that type of stuff. But one thing that we've done. Uh, in the past is, and actually we still do on certain properties where you know it just doesn't justify us coming in and planting our own grain plots. Is you know we'll we will buy the the grain off of the farmer. And so if a farmer is planting you know a uh, hundred acre field and we want him to leave two acres in soybeans, like when he goes and harvests you know harvests the beans, we know kind of the average of the field and and we'll actually just buy those beans from him. Uh, and, and that's you know, it, for me, for us, uh, you know, time is just a limited resource. And so uh, it's well worth it rather than us trying to plant our own uh, grain plots on all of our properties all across the board. So that's something that I would encourage people to consider and, and at least talk to the landowner, talk to the farmer um, and, and, and consider that because late season, that is absolutely a game changer in Missouri.
1: Yeah. But so you found farmers pretty open to that kind of thing. Cause I guess it saves them time anyways as well if they get paid and they don't need to harvest it that's kind of a win for them too maybe
3: right yeah exactly yeah saves them a little bit of time for the harvest and at the end of the day they're getting the same you know same amount of revenue and and so it works works out well
1: yeah okay i like it
3: and then some of us like you know like on um our main property in missouri that uh sean's dad is actually owns and um so you know basically that that farmer cash rents from him and then he just basically takes that out of the the cash rent payment or whatever just decreases it and so um you know there's always always ways to work it out but i think you know a lot of people having those conversations with the farmers may may change things and uh, missouri is 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 very interesting because after the rifle season in missouri man it's just a different world it's a different world here in missouri like i i remember just growing up like thinking like I got to get my buck, my archery buck killed before gun season because afterwards it's just such, such a tough deal. Um, But if you have standing grain and and standing food, that can really, really change the game. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Ditto here in Michigan. Um, So one more preseason situation I want to run you by. And this, I think this is something you'll be able to relate to from some past years of hunting that I know you've had with some of these deer. Imagine you've got a target buck who's eluded you for, Several years. Let's say there's been two years. He was he was four, and then he was five. In both years, he slipped through your fingers. weren't able to get him killed. Now it's year three with this deer. He's a six and a half year old, and you're going into the off season thinking like this is the deer. This is the only deer this year that I really want to kill. Given the history, the close calls. He's a stud. Uh, what would you do in the off season different than everything else we've discussed already? Like what unique tweaks would you make if you
3: knew you were preparing for that one deer um so yeah we've definitely had these situations and scenarios and I feel like every year I mean like you mentioned you may not have had an opportunity at this deer but like we're running cameras we're we're seeing them on the hoof you know we're learning and learning more and more every year every year every year and like we're kind of starting to put those pieces to the puzzle together and the more that you learn about this deer you learn about his habits his you know his frequencies his home range what you know what he prefers uh different times a year i mean it's, it's unbelievable the amount of information that we gather just through observation and trail cameras um and that's what it's, for me i mean that's that's what it's all about is that whole process of of you know people people that don't don't hunt and that don't you know necessarily manage deer or, or follow deer year after year don't don't quite get but it's just like I mean they're smart they're very smart and they're hard to kill and you know fooling one in his own game is kind of is kind of the ultimate ultimate prize and so um, but like you said you know if you may even if you may not have a chance at them you're still learning gathering this information and and so going into the season I kind of like to look back and say, okay, like where have we seen this deer the most? Where are we getting pictures of him the most? Let's kind of like map out his core area. And we've done it to a lot of times to where, all right, this is this deer's core area. He he really like hammers the brassicas or he really hammers the clover. Let's get something established close to his core area where he's bedding, where he's spending a lot of his time. And we've actually set up like spots and food plots specifically for a a specific buck just because uh, we've learned so much about him and and really want to go all in on him so um i know that it's it's been really effective for us in the past i mean killing killing a a mature deer is, is difficult enough as it is but if you can you know put the food that he prefers close to the area that he prefers to bed and you know get your setup in a spot where you know you can get in and, and catch catch the proper wind and 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 pull it off. It uh, it can be extremely effective. Um, actually, Ty Ty Easley, who's uh who's on our show and, and films with us quite a bit, he actually killed his I believe it was his biggest Missouri buck to date last year, and it was uh, hundred uh, lower hundred and eighty inch deer, um, just a giant from Missouri, and he had actually. Just like I was talking about, had been hunting this deer, uh, or been, had been like kind of watching him. He kind of uh, he was he was five last year, so the year before he was four. He was going to hunt him. He decided not to let him go one more year. But even then, he was you know paying attention to his patterns, you know, and watching him and and figuring everything out. And so he actually came in, and cleared off this area, and planted a, a clover plot. Uh, frost seeded it in the spring, and then came back and overseeded it in the fall. It was just lush, just perfect, and it was really close to where this deer liked to bed. And coming into season, he was just, he wasn't really, really consistent on this clover plot. Um, and so he was trying to figure out, man, like, I don't know when when I want to hunt him. Like, he hasn't been consistent enough for me to hunt. But then he's like, man, he then all of a sudden, boom, he shows up in daylight. And so he's like, man, he's like, God, I just don't know exactly what to do. And he started looking into it, and, and he started looking at the weather patterns and compared those to, uh, the times when the buck was showing up in daylight and he actually went back to the weather history and looked. And what he found was when that deer was daylighting in the evening, it was when the wind was out of the East in the morning. And so when that, when that buck went to bed in the morning and the wind, when the wind, when the wind was out of the East was when he would bed really close to that food plot. And so he would come and, and feed in at that evening one of the tough parts was is the eastern easterly wind was to the buck's advantage so it was not a great wind for like the for the stand he was hunting him at him. he really wanted like a north wind um is what he had set his stand up for and so he kind of watched and observed and kind of you know uh played it played it safe and then he finally got the weather uh, he hunted a couple times didn't see him and then, you know, a few days later, I got the weather perfect to where it was actually an east wind in the morning, switching to a north wind in the evening. Nice. And he was able to slip in there. And sure enough, the buck showed up and he shot uh, him. That's shot awesome. him right in that food plot that he built for him. So not much more rewarding than that than when you, like, really, you know, figure it, figure out all that information and you really put all that together. And I don't know, it's, it's just cool because, like, there is a science to it. There is, uh, there's a rhyme and a reason for everything that a tailed deer does and, you know I, I know that when I initially got started archery hunting like that was not something that I ever thought about right you just dive in your hunting and of course you get lucky and of course you can you know, during the rut you know anything can happen and so like you kill deer and you learn yeah. and and you figure it out but like really dialing in and really patterning a a deer um is pretty cool I love that I love when when you can get that
1: deep into it you know I, I kind of like this scenario you painted with ty so I'm curious how you would handle something like this let's say you've got back to this target buck circumstance. We've got this buck you've been after forever. He's the one. But all through, like, let's say you saw him in the summer. You knew he was there. You knew he was alive. He was around. Maybe you got one picture of him in September. So you know he he stuck around once we got into the fall. But now he's disappeared. He's, he's just nocturnal, very infrequent on your cameras and nocturnal only. And that continues. That continues to the beginning of the season, and it just keeps on going. You're getting zero daylight pictures of him. You've had zero daylight sightings of him. You've There's been some nights that you couldn't hunt, but you got out on a hilltop and you glassed, couldn't see him, nothing. At what point, assuming zero daylight pictures and zero daylight sightings, at what point would you take a stab at him, like an aggressive stab at him? Are you going to wait all the way till the rut? And, or, I mean, again, assuming no daylight sign at all, would you let that keep you out of the good stuff all the way to the rut? Or would you take a stab if a cold front pushed through in mid-October or early October, or late October, what would be the thing that would finally make you say, okay, even though there's no picks, I got to try because this thing is here, this date or this weather or this whatever, what would that take?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, it's hard to say like, er, like early season cold fronts can be, can be insane. And, um, they can really, you know, flip the switch for deer. And so, you know, things can happen to where uh, you may not be seeing a deer for a long time and not getting pics. And then all of a sudden, boom, he's there. But also on the flip side, like when you're just explaining that scenario to me, like in my head, I'm thinking like, I talked to a lot of people who are like, yeah, I got this buck and he's just nocturnal. He's just nocturnal. He's coming to, he's coming to the camera, but he just, he's, he's not moving in daylight. And I, I, I a lot of times I have to say, well, you know, you got to think about the, the the situation and is he really nocturnal or is he just not living on your farm is he just Mm -hmm. living on the neighbors and he's coming in the middle of night um and that's the case more often than not in my opinion um i just don't think there's that many like purely nocturnal bucks out there unless they're in extremely high pressured you know public land situations or high even high pressured you know private land where a lot of people are hunting different different properties and he's he's kind of getting pressured from all angles like there, there's got to be a pretty good reason that that a deer's completely nocturnal. Most most deer, I don't care how old they are. I mean, if they're not messed with and 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 pressured, they're gonna get up and feed in the daylight. Um, whether it be the last you know 20 minutes or the last hour and a half of daylight. So I always like to I always you know like to ask that question. Like, do you think you know where he's living? Do you think he's actually living close, bedding close, but just not showing up in daylight? Or do you think he's just venturing from a long ways away? And so, um, you know, I'm trying to think. we, I've had bucks that from running cameras year after year that literally will shed their velvet and they'll, they'll hold on, they'll hang around for a little bit. But I, I had these, these two bucks that hung together, and one of them was a really, really big deer. And every single year, I, I think I had them up to like seven years old, and every single year actually no he was no he was like nine he was like nine years old Jeez. and every single year he would leave and i'm not kidding you it'd be like september 13th september 14th <laughs> i think one year it was september like i had one picture in the morning of the 15th and but never again and then one year when it was i think he was nine years old nine years old um just an absolute monarch of a buck. Like it was definitely out of his prime and his prime. He was probably one, you know, eighties and he was like probably down down to one sixties, but just a, just a beast. And I'll never forget. I checked this trail camera and I was like, Oh my God, he was on here in daylight this morning, walking through this, like this, like natural funnel, early season funnel spot. And I was like, I got to get in there and hunt tonight. It was like September 18th or 19th. It was the latest he had been, had stayed on the property. And, I, uh, I shit you not, man, we got in the tree and here comes this buck and I'm like, oh my God, like we're going to kill him. He's walking right down this trail. Um, and he's just literally coming right to us. Like, this is perfect. He's got like two other bucks with him. Skyler's filming me and he gets to like 30 yards, 35 yards and he's quarter to me, but he's walking down this trail. So I'm getting ready to draw cause he's going to be broadside at 30. And so like, I just put tension on the string and I'm just getting ready to draw and up from behind him comes this this younger buck and just rams him right in the no. ass, like starts poking him with his head, and, and the buck runs off uh. and like bounds off to like 70 yards, stops and like looks back, looks around, and then just kind of like walks off out towards the destination field, but not to where I have, would have any shot and never saw him again, never got another picture of him again. <laughs> um, actually, a guy I know ended up finding him dead on the property that he would leave mine to go to. Um, he found him dead the following, that following year. And so it was, that was like, uh, probably one of the most like heartbroken moments of my, uh, of my like hunting career ever. I feel like, like just a chance at a monarch like that. And then like dead to rights, like I was just calm, like, just like, okay, here we go. This is going to happen. Let's do this. Uh, And just to have something completely out of your control, blow it. uh, Just like, oh, so frustrating.
1: That's crazy. So what about this? What about a situation with a similar outcome, but different? cause which is let's say that buck's coming in and the little buck behind him doesn't ram him he walks right into 30 yards you draw back you put the pin on him and you let go but you miss him you miss him dead to rights he takes off you've been watching this buck for years and years and years and your opportunity is blown like how do you handle that how do you mentally handle that are you the type that just like, all right right back at it I'm back in the tree tomorrow getting after it or do you take some time and just need to take a couple days and get your head right and do some shooting and make sure you're confident again like what's that look like for you mentally and and physically I guess
3: Yeah, I mean I I'm about as optimistic as of a person as you'll as you'll find uh for the most part and so like I'm I'm always just like all right like you just got to get back after it and give it a shot and but it can be extremely mentally taxing and I mean let's be real bow hunting can be a complete mental mental game it is a mental game it, oh, as yeah. much as it is anything honestly and that's something that I uh, you know I, I think just through my my personality and demeanor number one but then also through experience um have been able to really like really handle those emotions and that and that excitement that energy um really well and I'm just lucky that I'm able to do that I mean I kind of get really hyper focused in that moment I don't get um nervous I don't get like to where i would feel like i need to rush to make make stuff happen like i just i feel really calm and and really focused in those moments whereas a lot of people i know are are the opposite where they'll get flustered and they make decisions they shouldn't make they'll you know they won't pick a spot and they'll pull the pull the trigger and and just get caught up in the moment and let's be real i mean that's that that excitement and energy is why we all is why we're all so hooked on it and so um, but but for me, I'm able to really harness that until I pull the trigger, and then the second I pull the trigger is when I and when I get the the big rush of emotion. But um, there really isn't you know I don't know. Just take confidence is everything I think really. Just being confident and that that starts with practice. Um, that starts with you know shooting the shooting a lot to where you know your arrow is uh, going to fly where you want it to go, and it starts with equipment. Um, you know, having the equipment set up properly, understanding the equipment, especially in a world now where, I mean, these bows are very complex. The, the equipment we use is complex. And so understanding it, having it set up properly, tuned properly, and just building that, that confidence, um, I think is, is where it really, really pays off dividends. Yeah. So,
1: so fast forwarding a little bit then, um, I know you do a lot of hunts where you're you're traveling all across the country, hitting this spot, hitting that spot. So you show up somewhere and you've got a week or something and you've got to figure it out quick. And Let's say this is like a buddy's farm that they've allowed you access to the farm, but you don't have a history there. um, And and they're not going to help you out much because they've got their own thing going on. I don't know. Maybe this is like a situation when you go hunt with the Lindsay's or something where you show up and you have access, but you're on your own. And let's say it's late October maybe October 25th, and you've got five, six days to hunt. You arrive on day one. What I'm curious is how do trail cameras factor into what you're going to be doing? Like, do you have an immediate like day one, midday, I'm going to go hang six cameras in these types of places uh, right away? Is something like that on your agenda? Or, or if not, what do you do? Like, what does your trail camera situation look like specifically in that scenario, if, if you do at all?
3: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a pretty regular scenario for, for me, um, and I've done it both ways to where, you know, like when I've, I've hunted with the Lindsays in the past, like, you know, I usually will hunt, like, one of, one of Jeff's farms that they don't spend a lot of time on, but they have cameras on. And so, like, my number one thing is, like, all right, let me go check the cameras, because I can pull those cards, and I can learn so much about what's going on, what's happened the past week really all that matters in my, you know, that time of year. Like, what's going on this past week? What deer are hitting? What areas? What, you know, um, what what where deer are focused? And so, like, in that situation, that's an ideal situation for me. Is there's cameras out? I can I can grab those cards right now and learn everything that's been going on the past week, and I can make my you know decisions based on that. Um, the uh, on the on the other hand like if it's a situation where it's a new it's a property um there are not cameras out yet late october that time of year i still am going to do everything i can to get cameras out as fast as i can because as as soon as you get them out the quicker you can start gathering information and learning and that time of year is like literally the my favorite time of year to run trail cameras because the deer are just smashing the scrapes and so scrapes are where all of our cameras are for the most part Uh, i'd say 90 percent of them are on scrapes that time of year and you just learn so much about um you know what bucks are hitting what scrapes and what areas and even when like you get later into the month of november you start to see when bucks come out of lockdown like bucks might disappear for three days and then boom they're hitting a scrape and you know that deer is is not with a doe, and you have you know a window of opportunity to chase that that buck before he does find another doe and get locked down. And so, um, you know, I, I definitely would get trail cameras out as quick as possible, but also without being too intrusive, right? Because you can obviously cause more damage than good. Um, fortunately, you know, a lot of those those scrapes that bucks are hitting and stuff are on the edge of fields, and um, you know, some of the more you know uh, the the bigger you know, social scrapes, maybe in the timber in different areas, but, um, but you, can you can definitely get, uh, get away with getting some cameras out without being too intrusive and learning a lot in a, in a short amount of time.
1: What's your ideal way to do that? Like, is that, is it the first midday that you get to, you're going to go out there at lunch and drive a truck around and, and hit every, like find your six best or four best or however many field edge scrapes that look good and put something up? Or are you putting up cameras when you walk out to hunt for the first time? Or what's that specifically look like?
3: Maybe a little bit of both. Um, it just depends on the property, obviously. Uh, there's a really unique property that I, I've hunted the past two seasons in Colorado. That is on the eastern plains of Colorado. It's a whitetail property, so it's more like western Kansas type habitat, but um, river bottoms and and just a great, uh, really great, like rut type of uh, type of farm. And um, it actually has a uh, they have water wells all over this, this, this ranch. And there's people that are checking the wells pretty regularly. So the deer are actually like conditioned to a little bit of, uh, vehicle traffic. And so, um, there's also a levee that runs along all the length of the river for the most part. And so with that property, what I did the very first time I hunted it, I literally just went along that levee, which is the levee. There's a road on the levee and those guys will uh those guys drive that road maybe once once or twice a day um maybe not the inner levee every time but there's an outer levee too but uh but anyway like the deer are a little bit you know so they're they're a little bit conditioned to vehicle traffic so they're not going to like blow out of their bed or like freak out if they see a truck and so I went along that levee and I found all these trails where that were uh the deer were crossing the levee and I put cameras on like six different trails and so I knew that was, and and in Colorado, you can't sell cellular cameras. And so, um, I knew that'd be an easy way for me to, I can just jump in the truck, drive that levee, pull cards and check the cameras, you know, every couple of days or however often, but then, you know, you might have a situation with a farm where, um, you know, it's not as accessible with a vehicle without causing too much disturbance. And so in those situations, we definitely have, uh, spots where we put trail cameras near stands that we don't check those trail cameras unless we're like going to that stand to hunt. And those have been like the first ones that we've replaced with cell cameras as we've kind of gathered more and more cell cameras over the years. Um, because those are just super intrusive. You know, we, we would, we would only check them when we hunted the stand. And so basically you wouldn't learn what was going on until after you, you know, sat the stand. And so, um, so a little bit of both, it just, you got to figure out what you can get away with without causing too much, uh, too much disturbance and and roll with that. Yeah. So let's move into November.
1: And I've got two November situations that a lot of people, I think, dread. Like we all look forward to the rut, probably most of us, at least more than anything else in the whitetail season. But there's two things that might happen that could throw a wrench in your plans. Um, I'm curious if either one of those, if either one of these would bum you out or maybe you don't care and you'll just keep on doing what you're usually doing. But here's one. Let's imagine it's the first week of November and you get to your property and it is 70% crop field. Let's say, let's say this is like a 70% of this property of access to is is ag. The rest is some draws and some timber and some stuff like that. But you arrive for your big rut hunt and it is all standing corn. You've got several hundred acres of standing corn everywhere. Does this change what you would normally do for that first week of November? Or are you going to just do the same old, same old? You're going to hunt your funnels or your dough bedding errors or whatever? Um, or is that standing corn going to make you say, okay, I have to, I have to switch things up a little bit? Because a lot of people will find that scenario and say, ah, we didn't see any bucks because they're all in the standing corn. Or, ah, this is going to be a horrible week. There's all the standing corn. All the chasing's going to happen in there. Um, how would that impact what you think and, and do during that period?
3: Yeah, that's a tough that's a tough question i i i've definitely had that scenario happen before and i've you hear it all the time of people like ah they're in the corn they're just in the corn and i think that's an easy excuse for a lot of people Mm -hmm. um you know they i've definitely seen deer you know utilize the corn to an extent but like it's not like it's not like their preferred place to bed or their preferred place to run around and chase a doe through a bunch of stocks slapping them in the face like I, I I'm not buying into that at least. Um, you know, I, I, have I've experienced it, but I don't think it's like a, <laughs> I don't think it's like a go-to thing for a tail deer. So, um, I do think for sure though, I mean, they, deer can, you know, still bed in the timber nearby and still hang out in the timber nearby and then just pop out into the corn and can eat, you know, feed on the standing corn stalks. Um, which even then though, like that time of year, they're not that concerned about it either. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I can buy into that idea entirely, uh, uh, but I definitely have experienced it. And it definitely is a situation where I feel like it definitely subdues some of the activity that you do see. So, um, you know, still going to hunt the the rut, you know, the the typically good rut spots and then just learn, you know, from your observation. That's the biggest thing is literally, you know, every every day you're in the stand, you're learning and you're observing movement, you're, you're figuring out you know more patterns of the deer more what they're wanting to do um or you're observing that through trail cameras either way Um, but basically just ingesting all that information that you can you can the most information you can will help you kind of make a decision and try to figure out what's best so what's your uh,
1: you mentioned you would stick to your usual good rut stands like high level what would that be Uh, what would you describe as like your ideal first week in november type of setup
3: yeah so like it's, it, I don't know, I think like the first week in November, I prefer, I like to hunt near uh, near green plots a lot, um, areas where like a big majority of the does are going to be feeding because those bucks know that and they are going to come there looking for that, you know, first few does to come into heat. And then once, I feel like once you get into like that second and third week in November, um, second week in November, really, you know, you, st- you start to dive into the timber a little more. Uh, I, I love, a, you know, a good hardwoods rut spot, you know, that, or you might get just crazy chasing and running activity. That's just kind of the pinnacle of, of the excitement of the rut. And so, um, you know, obviously we look for pinch points, we look for funnels, we look for topography changes, whether it be like a saddle in a big ridge or, um, I'm just thinking back to a couple of years ago, I had a really, really cool hunt on November 7th, back in, in the timber in the morning. It's basically on the end of a ridge. So this big long ridge just runs and then it drops off and a couple other ridges kind of drop off down into this Creek. And so it's really a, I kind of, I, I did, I did a, a hanging hunt initially the evening before knowing it wasn't ideal conditions. It actually was, it was warm and it was really windy. Um, but I, I knew that would be a good time to just slip in and hang a stand. And so I slipped in, hung the stand, left all my stuff in the tree. We didn't have a great, a great hunt that evening, but I really was hanging it for the next morning. Um, we left all our stuff in the tree. The cold front blew through that evening um, and really, really dropped the temperature. We got in the next morning and actually ended up killing this buck that, uh, that we hung the stand for. And it, it was more of like a, there wasn't necessarily like a pinch uh, or anything obvious, uh, but it was more like on the end of this ridge and not kind of an observation point to where you could see a long ways. Um, and you could be able to call to deer to try to get them to come, come within bow range. But naturally, it also just happened to be a pretty good spot where that ridge ran out and deer were kind of crossing through there because we had a great hunt that morning, saw a bunch of deer, and ended up you know, shooting that buck actually kind of later in the morning.
1: Nice, nice. What about this situation then? I'm curious if this would change what you're describing. What if instead of the problem being standing corn, what if instead the problem was your entire week that you have budgeted for this trip is 75 degrees or 80 degrees, like just the worst rut weather you could dream up is what you've got and you're stuck with it. What would you do then? Does that change anything or are you still going to do the same thing and just hope that we can get some success in the mornings or the evenings or whatever?
3: Yeah. I mean, there gets a the point where it's like, you just got to go, right? You just gotta, you just gotta try it. And, um, especially if your time's limited and you have a vacation set aside or whatever that might be, I mean, the ruts, the rut. So, you know, the deer are going to be, they're they're, they're not going to quit rutting. Um, the, the daylight activity definitely will be subdued by the warmer temperatures, but, um, you know, in those situations, it may be even more crucial to kind of push the envelope a little bit, get closer to those bedding areas, get more um, deeper into the timber because that movement may be, you know, very, very first and very, very last light. And, I don't know. I mean, that time of year, obviously, when when even if it is unseasonably warm, I think your morning is going to be much more effective. Obviously, they're going to be cooler in the morning. Um, they're going to have been running around, you know, through, throughout the night, and so the mornings are typically a little bit more effective uh, when you do have those warmer weather rut hunts. So I'm trying to think. I know I've over the years, I know I've I've had some success for sure on warmer warmer days, but there's not one that really sticks out uh, in particular to me, but it just it just once the clock strikes november it's like all right like there, you can get away with a little more it's time to get a little more aggressive you can you know that there there's definitely a uh there's there's definitely situations where you could be too conservative in my opinion and sometimes it's just like all right like throw it out the window and go and just try because um <laughs> at that point you're relying so much on the deer anyways that's why like like I said earlier, targeting a specific mature buck like during November is is very very difficult. Um, early season is going to be that time, but then, you know, the the time where your odds are best to kill any mature buck is probably going to be November, uh, just because they're cruising, they're moving, they're their guards down. Um, you may not know which one it's going to be. Maybe one of the three that you know about, or maybe one you don't even know about. So, it's just a different time of year, diff- completely different different style of hunting. Yeah. So along those lines, what, let's go back to that
1: three-year that three year hunt for a specific target buck again. Let's say you end up, you know, seeing this buck. Now it's we're into November, you've been having encounters with him, but you haven't been able to close the deal, and he's still, like, he's the one. Yeah, there might be other deer coming through, but but you're dead set on this deer. You've just, you've invested so much time and energy, you can't imagine not shooting this deer. But... We get to the situation you alluded to earlier, which is opening day of firearm season. It's it's staring Ew. you right in the face, yeah. And you've got <laughs> you are here on the day before the opener. You've got the last day before the opener, and you're panicked. Maybe you're not panicked. I don't know. If it's me, I'm panicked because it's my last day before. There's a million people out there with guns, and he's gonna get killed probably. I'm, at least in my mind, I'm like, dang it! If I don't kill oh, him yeah. today, he's getting killed tomorrow by someone. Uh, what's your mindset? And what do you do? Like, what? How would you approach that last day? Do you do you throw a hail mary? Do you do something crazy? Do you just stick to the original plan? What do you What do you do on that last day before a firearm? Uh,
3: listen, I'm I'm actually I feel like I'm a pretty aggressive hunter, especially during the rut. But like in this situation, I 100% am not throwing a hail mary. Like, I think that's the worst thing you could do, especially if there's any chance this buck is you know. Anywhere close to a neighboring property, like the last thing you want to do is bump him out of his spot that he's comfortable with, push him onto the neighbors where there's going to be ten guys in in blaze orange, blazing guns across there. So I'm definitely playing it safe in that situation. Um, typically in those situations is when I just uh, bow out and head to Kansas, and then let the uh, let, let the Missouri property <laughs> just be a uh, uh, refuge for the yeah. deer during the gun season. Gun so, season sanctuary. So that's kind of our go-to deal, but. Um, but yeah, definitely I would not be aggressive in those situations because that happens a lot. You know, you just, people just, they just feel that pressure like, Oh no, like I got my, I got to get, I got to get this buck. I got to get my opportunity. And then boom, you know, that buck's been so comfortable in his area and you bump him out and, and, uh, he may, you know, venture off to somewhere else where he's not, uh, where he's not as protected, but you know, the opposite could be true as well. Like maybe it's a buck that's really living on the neighbors a lot and, you know, you feel like you really need to get aggressive to make that happen. And in that situation, I could, I could see that happening, but, um, but yeah, if you, if you got a pretty good idea of, of where the deer's living and that he's living on you, then yeah, I gotta, I gotta stick to the original plan.
1: All right. I take some, uh, take some self-control, Mike. I'm impressed.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not much of a panicker, but yeah. Sean, Sean would be pretty panicked. He's, he's, uh, he gets the anxiety <laughs> when the orange army comes out for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. it can take a few years off your life. That's for sure.
3: Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I know it's just one of those deals, man. It, like it is what it is. It's at the end of the day, like there's only so much that, that we can do so much that's in our control. And you know, we, we've been doing, doing this a long time. I've been bow hunting whitetails for, I mean, over, over 20 years now. And you know, we've been seriously managing for, for deer for, I'd say, you know, 10. And so um, that's a really re- rewarding process. We've been trying to, in Missouri, get deer to, to, to the ripe age of five years old, and it's just very difficult to do. And um, But when it, when it all works out, it's, it's amazing. But to, to your point about the, you know, the rifle situation, I actually passed up, this was two falls ago, i uh we had this just this beautiful beautiful four-year-old he was a three-year-old uh probably mid-60s three-year-old a bunch of trash just monster frame didn't have a big growth year three to four he was probably 170s uh lower 70s so he probably grew like five six inches seven inches whatever um and uh was like a but 170 inch four-year-old i mean 170 inch deer i haven't killed that many 170 inch deer that being said i don't get too caught up on that like i'm not like oh i got a you know, past this deer. So he'll be, you know, 200 inches, but I just, we just like to see him, see what they can do. And that this deer had that potential. And so I can't remember what it was, November, uh, early November. Um, I had him come in chasing a doe, just grunting, running all over this food plot right in front of me. Just incredible. Comes right under the tree, makes a scrape at like five yards and just an unbelievable hunt and, uh, let him walk. And the next week got shot by the, one of the neighbors. And I was just like, oh I was just like had the wind out of my sail I was like man like I'm not I'm not I'm not passing up those opportunities anymore like I just I'm not gonna do it like if it's a if it's a, a big deer that gets me going that I'm excited to shoot like I'm gonna shoot them. like yeah. enough deer are gonna enough deer are still gonna make it to five and six and seven years old because they're just smart and it's inevitable so I was like you know I'm not doing that again and so actually the the buck i shot last year in missouri just a beautiful 160 something 100 low 60s and he was a four-year-old he was a deer that we knew was four had potential to be who knows what but uh i just said i'm not doing it i'm not doing it again and so that's actually the uh the uh the buck that i shot last year so
1: i can't blame you for that man if it if it gets you pumped let it rip
3: <laughs> that's right yeah that's for sure and and yeah, I'm all for that that stuff. You know, we get a lot of people that are like, "Oh, yeah, you guys, you're name and dear, and you're you're getting caught up on the age and this and that." And you know, we're in a different position than a lot of other people, uh, and and that's kind of what we like to do. And we, you know, we get to we get to spend a lot of time out there managing our properties and doing stuff. And so that's that's what makes it exciting for us. And so that's why we do what we do. But then, you know, we go on different hunts where we're hunting a piece of property we've never stepped foot on, and. We run some cameras, and our expectations are a little bit different. And or, you know, Sean last year drew a, uh, he drew his Iowa tag and went and hunted a hunting public land in Iowa, and um, obviously expectations were different. He wasn't going to hold out for a five year old, you know, 170 uh, inch deer or whatever. He was going to shoot the first thing that, you know, made him happy that he thought was a good representation of the area and the and the property he was hunting. So, you know, it really is circumstantial, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I want to I want to run you through now some quick rapid fire questions. So these will be like a very simple, like yes or no answer or this or that answer. Um, and we'll just run through these really quick one after the other. Okay. Okay. All right. Does the moon matter to deer movement? Yes or no? Yes. Would you take a 50 yard shot at a whitetail with your bow? Yes or no? Yes. If you could only have one of these for the rest of your life, would you rather have a set of rattling antlers within the tree or a grunt tube?
3: Ooh, grunt tube.
1: <laughs> Expandable or fixed blade broadheads?
3: Expandable.
1: Should you stop a buck with some kind of sound before shooting? Yes or no?
3: If he's, yes. If he's not already stopped yeah, okay. on his own.
1: <laughs> This one's I don't gonna know get- if I'm
3: allowed to expand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to expand on every single uh, one of them. <laughs> I know,
1: I know. I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you the pass on that. This one, this next one's gonna get you in trouble. Which state has better deer hunters? Kansas or Missouri?
3: Ooh. <laughs> gotta gotta say Missouri. Okay.
1: And here's one last one. This one you can expand as much as you want on. Imagine that I am all powerful. I am in control of hunting across the country and i'm gonna tell you that i'm gonna take away your hunting privileges for the next 10 years you cannot hunt again for the next 10 years at all unless unless you kill a five-year-old buck this year the problem is you only have one day in one specific location that i'm gonna allow you to hunt on and you have to kill a five-year-old buck to keep your hunting rights for the next 10 years so it's a very high stakes hunt so tell me this mike what specific date would you pick for this hunt and, and paint me the picture of the very specific location you would choose for this important hunt.
3: Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) That is a lot of pressure. Um, Yes. uh, Just based on stats and history, I'm going to have to go with November 7th. Um, That has been, that has been the most productive day of November for me, uh, throughout the years, I feel like, and oh man, as far as by uh, you, we're we talking Missouri here, I guess. You can pick anywhere you want to go. Oh man, anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. You know what? I, if I if I had to choose anywhere, it's gonna be Kansas, um, for sure. And I, I I'm not there usually on November seventh, but as far as just like odds of killing a mature deer and on in November, like that is um, the area that I hunt out there is creek bottoms and draws and very, a lot of open, you know, pasture ground and, and tillable uh, ag fields. And so just sets up perfectly for rut hunting. Just everything's a pinch point. Essentially Um, the deer are literally just cruising up and down, checking these pinch points Kansas is also a bait state, so most properties that we're hunting Kansas um, were at least running either a corn pile or a feeder, um, which not necessarily that time of year hunting over it much at all. Really, it's just keeping an eye on what deer are in the area, so you've got a good idea of what you know where to hunt and what farms and what places to key on. So, um, man, I was, so this this specific spot that I'm kind of thinking of. Is a spot that I uh, I killed my Kansas deer uh, two years ago, Um, and it's basically a river bottom by an old homestead that kind of runs through, and it crosses this old road, and it basically it butts up to these big rolling like almost like uh, not sand hills, but like the Flint Hills, like the kind of the Flint Hills of Kansas, Mm -hmm. and these deer will. The bucks will kind of push does up into these up into the flint hills, into these like little cuts and little cedar draws, but then they always come down to the river down when they are seeking does. And so this is this particular stand that I'm thinking of, just a great observation point. You can really see to call a long ways. You could even decoy. Um, but also you get the it's kind of a all in one. It's the rut funnel, it's a observation spot, and it's a decoy spot kind of all all kind of intertwined into
1: one. I like it I like your odds, Mike and uh, and with that <laughs> you have uh, you've made it through the what would you do gauntlet so uh, well done and all right for uh, for folks that want to see what you guys have got going on with Hartland Bowhunter, where should they where can they watch the show where can they see your other videos how can they follow along?
3: yeah pretty much i mean everywhere um you know we uh the our new season of the show season 14 is airing right now on outdoor channel new episodes uh are dropping each week our primary is thursday at nine thirty. um obviously social media is the best way to kind of keep up instagram and facebook kind of keep up on the up and up on what's the latest what what new videos are dropping and then we have a YouTube channel as well. We're putting out regular content there. We produce, produce a couple of different digital series there. So, um, we're on Amazon, uh, Amazon prime. We're on, um, VHX digital download pretty much anywhere. iTunes, um, anywhere content can be consumed. And so, uh, if we're somewhere where you consume content and we're not there, then we need to know about it. Awesome, man.
1: Well, uh, I can't recommend your stuff enough. I, uh, for years and years and years have been following what you're doing and you guys never cease to impress. So, uh, keep up the good work and thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to chat today.
3: Yeah, absolutely, man. It's always good catching up. It's, uh, we go, go way back. I still think back to the Iowa, Iowa deer classic days and, <laughs> yeah. and the ATA days back in the day.
1: Oh man, we were just a couple of kids back then.
3: I know. I, I believe you were camping in a car, uh, sleeping in a car one one year. If I, if I, were, if I recall yeah. correctly,
1: yeah, that, was, that that came to mind this morning when I was thinking about our chat today. I was like, I remember back in the day, sitting at the bar, chatting with you, and then going back to sleep in a parking garage.
3: <laughs> On that grind, man. Yep. That's What people don't get, we've people come a long get. way. They want yeah, they want to get, they want to get started, want to want to be involved in the industry. It's, it's not an easy one, but you gotta be, you gotta. Yeah, you got to be willing to do what it takes and you yeah. got to uh, you got to be in it for the right reasons. That's yeah. a big thing.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad that we're still both here doing it. It's been a lot of fun. So, uh
3: Yeah, wouldn't have it any other way.
1: That's for sure. Well, thanks, buddy. Let's uh let's do it again soon.
3: All right, until next time. See you, Mike. All right, and that's a wrap. Thank you
1: again for tuning in. Uh, I will just remind you to please Follow John's advice from the beginning of the podcast and make sure you stay tuned on all things recovering America's wildlife act. Make sure you're learning about the updates there. Join a conservation organization or get on the newsletter so you can stay up to date. Send an email or a note to your representatives, your senators, and stay tuned because as this thing moves down the line, we want to be able to jump on it and take action immediately when it's most impactful. And I'll be sure to keep you all updated as well. Secondly, Make sure you're checking out everything from Heartland Bowhunter, their show on TV, their YouTube channel, uh, social media, whatever it is. These guys are doing great work. I know you'll enjoy it. And uh, I personally at least want to stay up to speed on what Mike's got going on this season. And hopefully he'll put a couple more bucks on the ground. So with that all said, thank you all for tuning in. Appreciate it. And until next time, stay wired to hunt.
0: It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine
1: problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam